Welcome to Kilts and Culture with USA Kilts. We're here to talk about all things Highland dress, the cultures and the heritage that created it, and how to enjoy the kilt in the 21st century. From tartan and trues to haggis and history, we cover it all. So sit back, grab your beverage of choice, and enjoy the show. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome to Kilts and Culture. Special social distancing episode. I'm Rocky. I'm Mac. And that's Mac. My arm probably disappears when I do that. Um, for the record, we are 10 feet apart. I made sure we are currently in the studio. 10 feet is right here. So we are 10 feet apart. So we are obeying restrictions. Um, uh, basically, Mac is our uh, uh, production manager. He's our head kilt maker. Um, He's also usually on the other end of the camera, uh, or on the other side, over there. Something like that, so, yeah. Over there, on the other side of the room. He's not, because Eric is at home, so Mac is now my co-host for today. Lucas, who's our store manager, is actually the one curating the questions. Um, so that's how we have this set up for today. Uh, Eric is going to be, I think he's going to be logged into Facebook. He's going to be poking around as well, trying to help people out in the comments section, and Mac and I are here to answer your questions. Today, we don't have, we kind of have a try, not really, but sort of. A retry, um, try. Yeah, a retry. <laughs> um, basically, with everything that's going on, we all need a drink. So today, we're not going to do like, you know, give you feedback on it. We just need a drink. So, that being said, I have my bottle of Oban, which I'm going to be. Uh, pouring a little, little little glass of Oban. Mr. Mac, what do you got over there? Oh, I've got the Chattanooga whiskey. The Chattanooga choo-choo. Since I couldn't be in Tennessee for the Bristol race uh, this weekend because of everything, I figured at least got to get some Tennessee. Fair so. enough. And Lucas, what do you have back there uh, behind door number three? Back here behind door number three, I have Jameson's cask mates, actually. Okay. Very okay. tasty. Had it before. Happy to have it again. But uh, the, the bottle's looking kind of empty. I'm curious to what happened to all the whiskey in there originally. What did we do? What did we use that for? I forget. Uh, I think we did two. Did we do two testing tastings with it? Yeah, we might have. We might have had it for. We didn't do it like tastings. With it. I know we did one tasting with it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure. Maybe that was one of my own from my from my basement. Maybe that was why. Maybe we had that there from the whiskey um, vault. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, regardless. Slajava. Yes. Like you, for us here, it has been ungodly stressful. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on, obviously, with COVID-19, social distancing, uh, you know, basically moving the goalposts on what we were allowed to do and not allowed to do as a business. Um, we tried to, you know, adhere to all those kind of things. Um, so we just wanted to have an episode where we kind of just, the, the try, if you will, is going to be us just kind of giving you the lay of the land where we're at. Um, the, the first thing I want to say is I want to give a shout out and a thank you to all the first responders, yes. the doctors, the nurses, everybody who's on the front lines right now doing what they can, you know, putting their lives on the line to help us. Um, I don't want this whole episode to be about all this stuff, but I wanted to take a moment out to just thank them for what they're doing. 
Um, it is selfless. It is, it's their job, but it's selfless and it is dangerous, especially right now. Um, so that being said, we are, uh, well, I'm going to go one way, then come back. Um, basically we have, we're, we're kilt makers. What can we do? Um, I could not just, you know, basically tell everybody, okay, you know, go home, take, you know, eight weeks off, 12 weeks off, whatever it ends up being, and just close down the company and do nothing. I, that's not in my nature. Um, I had to figure out some way to at least contribute and to make, keep things moving as much as we can and to help in some way. Um, so right now we've kind of switched our production over and we're actually making surgical masks. So this is what we're doing for the uh, doctors, nurses, police, fire, EMS, anybody that needs masks. We are basically, we're doing a few things. We are still paying the people who are sewing the masks. We need to keep the economy moving and we want to keep people, you know, income coming in for some people. Um, so we are selling these masks at cost to first responders and that kind of thing. We are not selling them to the general public yet. We're trying to prioritize the people who need them most right now, the people who are most at risk. Um, so eventually we may, but for right now, we're just trying to get as many done as possible. We have no idea what our run rate's going to be, basically how fast we can make them, get them in, get them out. Um, we have an army of people who volunteered, you know, paid volunteers, but volunteers sewing from their houses. Um, we have about 35 people sewing for us from their homes. We have uh, a sewing machine supply store in King of Prussia who actually does classes um, called Steve's Sewing and Vacuum Center. Steve's an awesome guy. He has a bunch of his employees and people who have taken classes from him. They've stepped up. They're trying to help us sew these masks as fast as possible. We have a couple cut and sew places up in Allentown that we're friendly with. They set, up what, set us up with a supply chain. They set us up with elastic. They set us up with um, uh, basically people to help us sew these. We are trying our best to make as many as possible as quickly as possible. The scary part is the orders coming in are outpacing our ability to put out, but we're trying and trying and trying and just doing as much as we can. Um, on the USA Kilts front, <clears throat> the company currently is at about 10% production capacity, meaning we have a kilt maker or two sewing from home, but everyone who can make masks for us is making masks. Um, the fabric mills in Scotland and most of our suppliers in Scotland basically have closed down for their shutdowns that they are having over there due to this. Um, but that doesn't mean we're not shipping. We still have a warehouse full of stuff. So if you need belts, buckles, you know, kilt pins, whatever, we have those kind of things in stock. We are still shipping through this. Um, so if you need anything, this is not a sales pitch, but if you need anything, we are still moving as fast as we can. We're just going to ask that everyone be a bit patient with us, especially on the kilt making front. Everything is an unknown. This is all uncharted territory for us as it is for you. So luckily everyone's been extremely patient and very, very kind to us in this way. And we really do, you know, tip our hats. We do appreciate that very much. Um, now I'm done. I'm done talking about it. You guys are stressed out about the whole COVID thing. We're stressed out. Good <laughs> God, we are stressed out about this stuff, um, especially trying to help in as much as we can. So ultimately, we made the decision. We did want to do a show today. 
It has nothing to do with COVID, but it's a distraction. It's a distraction for you guys. And frankly, it's a distraction for us. We need it as much as you guys do. So please sit back, pour yourself a nice tall pint of scotch, and enjoy the show. Load in your questions. Lucas is going to be curating them over there. Mac has a bunch of preloaded questions that we got before and old ones we haven't gotten to yet. So, that being said, Mr. Mac, take well, it away. Should we start off with probably the one question that Lucas is going to get a lot of on there is what tartans are we wearing? What tartans? What tartans are we wearing? This is the, I am wearing the, uh, what are we calling this? Uh, scruffy, uh, basically the, uh, the bagpiper, the old bagpiper for Dropkick Murphy's, Scruffy Wallace. His buddy of mine, he's now in law enforcement up in Massachusetts, and he wanted a tartan designed to match his law enforcement uniform for when he did police weddings, funerals, that kind of stuff. So I designed this one specifically for him, um, the Scruffy Law Enforcement Tartan. I think tartan that's kind of what we'll call called. it. Sure. That's what I'm going to call it now. Um, so that's what I'm wearing today. Because that's what I had here. <laughs> Mr. Mac. I've got on the uh, Longford County Crest Tartan, um, which I think is no longer in existence. Discontinued, yes. Done. Yes. That's it. Exclusive. I think Adam, our very own Adam, has the other last piece. So <gasps> it's done, 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 done. I've heard that he's willing to fight people for it. So please show up at his house <laughs> and he will fight you for it. He's not that strong. He <laughs> no. Um. Lucas, yeah. what do you got on back there? What do you have, Lucas? Well, not encouragements. Nobody can seal it, but... <laughs> <laughs> not encouragements to fight Mac. <laughs> um, I have a quick question here. Now, from... what tartan do you have on? Oh, what tartan? I'm sorry. Yeah. I have Roxborough Ancient on. Or Roxborough District. Muted. Muted. Yeah, the muted. Yeah, yeah. Muted, yeah. That's beautiful tartan. This I one, love that one hasn't muted. come out in a while. Yeah, I love it and uh, enjoy it quite a bit. Might have to get a might have to get an eight yard eventually. And the other thing with with what Lucas got on, he's got a box pleat, Ooh. so his is even even more special. He's super special. Yeah, let's, he's a special snowflake. That let's, Lucas. Let's hear it for box pleats in the comment section. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. All right, All Mr. Right, Mac. So we'll start with. Let's uh, start him off with our our good friend Kirk Kinneman. Ah, uh, that guy again. Yeah, he seems to pop up every time. Jeez, I bet he's watching too. He's oh. one. Of, he's one of those. So he's asking, in your experience, which is the hardest tartan to work with? The sew? Or, yeah. It's okay. to work with. So I'm guessing... I'm assuming for a kilt. Yeah, it's, um, right, we'll I would go that, that way. Um, hardest tartan to work with? I would... Material-wise, I would say something that is not wool or not PV, which is why we don't do anything that's not wool <laughs> or not PV. Made that real easy. Um, but like if we sewn, like I've tried sewing things on the bias and that's a big pain in the butt. Um, we knits like weird fabrics way, way back when. Um, and yeah, so anything non wool would be very, very difficult. Tartan wise though, I'm going to say stock tartan. Let's, let's make these parameters stock tartan. You can just call up mill, order it. Boom. Done. Um, I think I'm going to steal your answer. Probably Aberdeen. It. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, basically, Aberdeen District Tartan has a set size that is half the circumference of the earth. It is, uh, what is it, like 14 or 15 inches? It's like 14 and a half, I think, is the last one we got yeah. in. Yeah, Lockheron does it in 16 ounce, and it's like a ridiculous set size. So there's no 
good way to pleat it to the stripe because it would be the pleats would be five, four inches wide each, and you'd have four of them. Um, and it's to the set. It's kind of you're you're making up your own set within it, and it's just it's one of those that doesn't really work well. Um, it's a nice looking tartan if you like pinkish kind of color, um, but pink and copper. Yeah, um, but yeah, Aberdeen's probably my my go to. Hate it. Yeah, it doesn't even doesn't even repeat vertically. It only you get basically. Oh uh, yeah, like a, a, set a full a set on quarter. the front apron. Yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't. Yeah, it's. Yeah, that's huge. There's a lot of wastage then in a kilt. Uh, if you have to splice, if you're ordering <laughs> four yards double width and you have to splice it, you may, if it's, if depending on where the mill cuts it when they send it to us, you may be wasting, you know, eight inches, ten inches of fabric yeah. to get to a spot where you can splice it. Um, luckily, Lock Lock Aaron's doing single width cloth now as well. But uh, thank you <laughs> for that one. Yeah, <clears throat> screws up our fly blades, but yeah, it is what it is. Um, any other ones you can think of off the top I of the head? I would say the hardest tartan to work with would be more, I'm going to go shadow tartans. Um, some of those are quite difficult because you gotta, you yeah. almost have to take the material and kind of lean different angles to see some of those, the the way the twill line, or the way the, the, the tartan lines are on there because the material's woven, some of the threads are twisted one way and then the other threads twist the other way, which creates that pattern. But... Some of the mills use their the thread colors are so close together, yeah, that you can't see that yeah, line you until almost, you're a weird angle. Yeah, I was gonna say you almost have to have like the light on the other side of the machine, angling back at the fabric to bounce at your face. Yeah, it's just a, so you can see a little bit of the pattern. It's a hope and pray. <clears throat> a lot of it's, times, <laughs> spray and play. But the in fairness. If if you're that close to it and can't see, yeah, the customer or or people ten feet away from the customer won't be able to tell if it's you know two threads off here, three threads off there. It's just gonna it's gonna be as close as we can get it. Yeah. Um. But yeah, they're they're real difficult. They they definitely test the eyes. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So, Aberdeen, and the bastard that made the. Uh... <laughs> The the shadows, yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for doing that for all the kilt makers. Um, cool. Mr. Lucas, next question. All right. First up, we've got Wayne, and Wayne is saying he would like to buy a kilt, but he thinks folks are going to make fun of him. How often and when should you wear a kilt in public? <clears throat> the confidence to wear a kilt comes from within, period. Um, it is a mental curb this high that you have to get over. No one else has anything to say about your life but you. You are the one, you are the hero of your own story. It's your desires, your wants that matter to you. So if a random, you know, busload of kids screaming past you at 70 miles an hour, screams, you know, obscenities out the windows, hey, nice skirt, buddy, who cares? They have zero Zero, that was three. Zero impact on your life. Now, if your wife, if your husband, if your parents, whatever, depending on your age, um, are going to be you know, a little weirded out or you know, are going to say things to you, that's a little bit of a different story because you're going to have to find a way to navigate that within your own family. But ultimately, it's your happiness that matters in your own life. Period. So if mom thinks you're weird for wearing a kilt just explain to her mom this means something to me 
I'm going to do it. Period. And this is what I'm going to do now. Once I go out in public, I'm going to be in a kill. And over time, she will, or he, or whoever, will kind of come to accept it after you've done it multiple times. If they really freak out about it, then maybe not wear it around them. But as far as the general public's concerned, who cares? Just do it. It really only is a thing in your head. And if Johnny Pants 85 wants to make a negative comment on your Facebook post because he saw you wearing a skirt, so what? Johnny Pants 85 has security issues. Johnny Pants 85 has his own issues that he's got to deal with. Don't make his problems your problem. You do you. Yeah, I mean, you starting off just you're like, well, kind of, I'm going to back up a step. Like Rocky's saying, you're going to see that person for maybe 10 seconds and they're gone especially if it's a busload of kids going down the road. Um, yeah, it, if, if it's something you want to do and you really feel, and you're passionate about wearing, you want to wear something, um, start off, you know, you got to build up your confidence as yourself and just start off, go to the grocery store, go and then come back or, or just, and then next time go to the grocery store and then in this place or, and build yourself up too, um, by, or, by going even distances. Yeah. Or, not even grocery store where it's, you're going to be the only guy in a kilt. Eric's advice, which is sound advice, is if you, well, once they're reopened again, um, <laughs> go to a Celtic festival. Yeah. Go to an Irish pub. Go to somewhere where it's going to be a little bit more accepted if you're concerned about it. And then you'll feel like you're fitting in a little bit more and you're going to get more positive comments than negative ones. So that'll help build up your self-esteem. It'll help get you more comfortable. And then you start saying, all right, well, I'm wearing my kilt today, so I'm going to go to the grocery store. Consequences be damned. And you just kind of move on from there. Yeah, I mean, everyone, all of fashion starts off in a, in a spot like that. So no matter what you wear, somewhere along the line, someone made fun of somebody for wearing a T-shirt. So it's, and now it's normal. So it's, yeah. it's just the trend that's going to happen. You're going to get some of that, but you're also going to get the other end of the spectrum too. You're going to have people coming up and talk to you that wouldn't have talked to you before or they're going to they're going to tell you all about their 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 family history and about their this related to this clan or this clan. So you're going to you're going to get to interact with people that you've never interacted with and then you might learn something from that person and who knows, you know, friendships build out of that type of stuff too. So, yep, absolutely. Cool. Mr. Mac, let's do another one. All right. So we have uh uh Cameron White uh <coughs> bringing this question to us. <clears throat> so what is the controversy over the... I'm going to mess this name up in a hurry. <laughs> uh, and you just said Best earlier. Mr. Skodakum? The Sobieski... Sobieski Stewarts? That one. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Those people. Yep. And their writings. And how it affected tartan making. <clears throat> and why do we... And is this why we now have a Scottish registry of tartans? And what organizations handled, handled the registry before the... Uh, the Tartan Register. Yeah, for yeah, yeah. now. Um, <clears throat> the Sobieski Stewarts. Um, I've actually, um, I'm happy, Cameron, you, you uh, asked this question. I was actually thinking about at some point doing a longer kind of uh, single answer thing about this particular one. Um, the Sobieski Stewarts were two brothers who their, their claim to fame was they said that they were, they're Polish Scots and that they were related through Bonnie Prince Charlie's Polish side to Bonnie Prince Charlie. And 
basically they came up with their they're effectively con men they came up with a book called the uh, Vestiarium Scoticum I probably butchered that name don't care if I said it right it's on me if I said it wrong it's on Eric he's the one who told me how to say it um, it was written I think in 1842 and it was basically a collection of different clan tartans disclaimer they made the majority up if not all of them so it's kind of where the whole clan thing started and they just kind of were two con men who wanted to move material and sell material and they made up this whole thing and just presented it i believe within their lifetime it was kind of sussed out that this is complete bunk um but at the same time clan chiefs kind of got on board to a degree and were like yeah that's a cool tartan so i don't care whether mcpherson or or barclay or whatever in the book is just made up i like it so that's the clan tartan now so it was kind of it's a weird origin story for a lot of clan tartans where these two guys who were just literally profiteering off the stuff just you know con men who just made things up out of thin air basically put it forth and it was kind of accepted and even after it was found out to be a con they just kind of said well we know it's a con but we still like it so they kept going with it um and a lot of those tartans are actually the official tartans now like clan chiefs have recognized them so that's where it kind of started in i'm not sure the exact timeline but there was kind of an unspoken thing where it was like the McDonald tartan was McDonald and it, it moved forward as specific patterns, but no one was really recording it. Um, I want to say the 1970s, don't quote me on it. Um, 70s, 80s kind of thing. There was a, uh, there was a group called the, the STS, the Scottish Tartan Society. Um, they started cataloging all of the tartans that existed whether that is the ones from the Sobieski Stewarts, ones that were designed after that, didn't matter. They started cataloging all of the official tartans that existed worldwide. The STS eventually kind of fell apart and split into effectively two factions. The Scottish Tartan World Registry, which was run by a guy named uh, uh, Keith Lumsden, and another arm of it uh, became the Scottish Tartans Authority, and Brian Wilton was the head of that. The Scottish Tartans Authority was the, the more well-known one. Um, the, basically, what it boiled down to was the mills in Scotland and the, the, the tartan companies in Scotland got behind the STA and kind of became a, a, lo a loose amalgamation, a, a, a conglomerate thing, and kind of went forward from there with the STA. The Scottish Tartan World Register registered some individual tartans. The STA was registering their own tartans. Some people were registering both. They both had the records predating their own existence. And somewhere along 2005 or 2006, seven, somewhere in there, um, basically they both, you know, they were, you know, it was the Scottish Tartan Society. Then it was Scottish Tartan World Register over here and the STA over here. And they both traveled their own path. And then at some point, they both started uh, uh, you know, petitioning the Scottish government. Hey, we need an actual government body to record these things. We need one unifying thing. So they both 
kind of put all the data together and you got the Scottish Tartan Registry, which is an official branch of the Scottish government. They are the ones currently recording tartans for posterity. Um, and that's where it stands currently is basically if you want to record a tartan, you go to the Scottish Tartan Register gov.uk i think and um that's where you record official tartans now so is this why there's so many 1842 variants yes touching on a, a point you made earlier yes it's <clears throat> there was the 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 sobieski stewarts you know put out their book in 1842 a lot of those were weird variations or they're not the current one but it was an old one um there's also other things like uh What's it called? Wilson's Bannockburn and other mills that had done things during those that same kind of time period. And it was like Wilson's Bannockburn was the main mill, a huge mill that was producing actual tartans. So there's some Wilson's Bannockburn variants. There's like there's all kinds of different variants, but it's it's based on Sobieski's and the history of it. And some clans may have a an older variation of a tartan or a newer ver version of a tartan like um, Buchanan. Buchanan has a Buchanan old, and that is, uh, I believe this is true. Again, don't quote me on it. Um, the Buchanan tartan is a, an asymmetrical tartan. It doesn't repeat. Um, but that wasn't always necessarily the case. The Buchanan tartan actually had a repeating version where it was, you know, the, the red section and the green section were the pivots and the yellow section was between them. What the, the, the story that I believe is true, again, don't quote me, was that a weaver screwed up and did an asymmetrical version where it was ABC, 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 where it was green, yellow, you know, green, yellow, red, green, yellow, red, green, yellow, red, where it didn't actually flip and mirror image itself. And that just kind of became the Buchanan Tartan versus... Uh, the one that was now that is now referred to as Buchanan Old, which is the one that's actually symmetrical. Mills would never, never. No, they, they would, would never, never come up Flower of Scotland. No, they would never <laughs> screw something up royally and then just give it a different name and pass it off and say this is the new thing now. Never happened. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> no, no specific meal I'm thinking of. I won't name names. You cannot make me. Mr. Lucas, next question. All right, next one up. We have a question from Brad Russell, who's a kilt newbie. And he says, I understand why the waist measurement is vital for the fit, but I was wondering why the hip measurement was needed since the kilt hangs straight down. Brad, you may have what we in the biz <laughs> refer to as Noestal disease. You have Noestal um, guys are, the, most kilts are custom made and guys are built differently than women, but there's still some variation in guys. Guys, some guys have a flat butt, hence no ass tall. And they're more of a cylinder than they are an actual, you know, curvy person. Now there's other guys who are swimmers, runners, hockey players, whatever, who have muscular rear ends and they're their kilt would actually need a seven to eight inch difference between the waist and the hips. So not every guy has a you know reasonable posterior, but some guys do. So there needs to be an allowance 
for the hip measurement different from the waist measurement? Yeah, I think what comes to my mind is the uh, one of our customers that visits up at Cut uh, Classic. Um, he's got the smallest waist I've, I think I've ever seen on a on an actual man, and his hips are just they're huge. Um, he's he's like a a ten inch difference, and it, it's 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 fun to you, sew. Yo, it's a blast. Uh, <laughs> But you need that to get that shape, to get that form, to to get it to hang right. It, it, we need those measurements are important. Now it's a matter of what happens for someone who doesn't want a hip strap. Then how how important is that hip, is that hip measurement then? More, uh, or as if not more. Um, mm-hmm. The hip the hip measurement you need the allowance um, for a couple of reasons. Number one. Um, for the proper form the kilt should be snug around the belly and then you know if you're looking at profile view it goes flat down the small of the back and then comes out a little bit around the 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 widest part of the rear end and then should hang from the widest part straight down if you don't have the right hip measurement what will happen is it will it's going to want to be a tube and you're going to put undue stress on the bottom of the fell the sewn down portion of the pleats where we stop sewing at the widest part of your rear end, you're going to put an undue amount of stress right there. And when you sit down, eventually you're going to pop a seam. And then you're going to have like two pleats that kind of split and go straight up uh, to the small of your back or multiple pleats that do that. So it is a very important measurement still. Yeah, I'm going to jump down to another question we have here, which kind of goes in hand-to-hand with this. Is, uh, is, is Mike is asking, what causes the left side of the kilt's apron and the first pleat to sometimes kick out if we don't have that shaping right we're gonna you're gonna see that that's gonna flare out weird and then it causes other issues along the way but that's one of the reasons why that may that type of thing may happen and again this is why that hip hip measurement is important agreed it's you need the the front apron and a kilt um <clears throat> hey mac what was that question again <laughs> is, uh, we're gonna roll right into it what causes the left side of the uh, kilt apron and the first pleat to sometimes stick out? Great question. Who asked that? Uh, Mike. Mike. Great question. Glad you asked, buddy. We got you. Um, the front apron of a kilt isn't just straight up and down. It's actually curved and angled. It's shaped to the wearer's body. So the front apron of the kilt in the top two inches the sewn down portion by the fringe as well as where it's actually attached to the the first pleat the top two inches are what's known as the rise they will be effectively straight up and down then from the two inch mark and that and that will align with the center of the top strap and buckle from that point down about five inches it's going to go on an angle and that angle allows for some of the ease for the widest part of the rear end. It helps shape the pleats or the shape the front apron and, and the kilt around your body and allow for your rear end while you're standing or sitting. And then the bottom inch or so after the angle is gonna go effectively straight down or a much less angle, less severe angle. And that's to start to bring it down so that it hangs out to the widest part of you and then kind of falls straight down from the widest part of your rear end straight down. Now, the front apron, why does that pleat kick forward a little bit sometimes? It's because basically you're trying to get the fabric to do something it doesn't want to do. 
the fabric wants to be on a straight angle or hanging straight up and down, you know, vertically or at a, at a diagonal. It doesn't want to go straight and curve and a little bit less of a curve and then go continue straight down. So the reason why that kind of kicks forward is the fabric is fighting what we want it to do. We're trying to force it to do something it doesn't want. We have to shape the fabric. So if it happens to kick forward a little bit, the easiest thing to do is just basically pinch it down at the bottom so that it's not kicking forward and then re-iron re, uh, re in the front apron to that new pinched spot and that will help mold it around the wider part of your body, around the, uh, uh, the waist and hips in the front. Yeah, and then that sometimes gives us the problem where you guys will see it and, and we'll get some emails about it where on the apron, your apron's hanging flat here, but then you'll see this corner that'll that'll poke out. We'll have to tack that corner up. We'll have to fold that up, and then we stitch that up to help keep that from visibly showing and visibly dropping below the front apron. So that's the, really the only that's the only stitching you will ever see. The bottom of the kilt is to bring that up, unless we need to hem something, then you'll see a different kind of stitch. But the you'll just see a little a little line of stitching a that'll go right there. Yeah, yeah, like a half moon type, <clears throat> type uh, shape. Yeah, but that's yep. it. Yeah, if you actually open up the, the front apron or the, the front plate of your kilt and you look down at the bottom edge um, from the front apron to the edge of the first pleat in the depth of that pleat, you're going to see a little line of stitching. And some people will actually see that and call us and say, there's a weird hem in this one area. I'm not sure why. There's a mistake. What's going on? Was that done by accident? And ultimately, no, it's done on purpose. What Mac is talking about is correct. Um, because we're angling the front apron weird, it wants to dip down at the bottom. So you just kind of fold that back up on itself and tack that up so that it doesn't dip down below the bottom of the front apron. And you have a nice, clean, finished edge at the bottom of the apron. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Hope that helps. Mr. Lucas, next question. All right. Next question from Mickey. And Mickey is asking, is there anything preventing some tartans to be made in polyviscose? For instance, Thompson's have some wonderful wool tartans, but limited PV tartans. Is it a trademark or is it another issue? The viability of X number of tartans in the market. Um, there's only one mill that we use that makes polyviscose fabric. There's only one mill in the UK, I should say, that weaves polyester, rayon, polyester, viscose tartan fabric um, and they weave about 75-ish 80 tartans or so in the PV cloth we actually have specific ones that we tell them to weave just for us firefighter law enforcement you know uh, American heritage the military tartans and we buy you know hundreds of yards at a time um, but those basically they're only producing and stocking what they think they can sell so if, you know, uh, they already do, what, two, three, technically, three. Thompsons. I wish they did um, the other one. In the polyviscose fabric. So they're not going to do to weave every single variant of every single tartan. It's just commercially not viable. They would have way too much inventory. So basically, they just kind of decide, all right, these are the ones that are going to be most popular. These are the ones that we've been asked for. These are the ones that, you know, schools have requested this tartan. So those are the ones that they stock, and that's it. We expand on that a little bit, as I said, with our range. But 
it's not ones that, you know, it's not every single tartan, unfortunately. I wish we could offer hundreds of different tartans in polyviscose, but the mill only offers about 75, and we do not have infinite funds <laughs> as much as I would like to. We don't have infinite funds, so we only are able to purchase, you know, X amount of the different tartans, and the mill's only allowed to, or only able to stock support a certain amount of them. Now, if him and his group of friends got together and wanted to get something custom woven, true, could that be done? Yes. Um, the minimums for a custom weave of PV are much higher. Uh, well, I shouldn't say the minimums. A reasonable price on the minimums for PV are much higher, like 130 meters, 200 meters, that kind of price range, or that kind of uh, like length of cloth. That's enough for a lot of kilts. So, if you want something custom, sure, we could sort it for you. But unfortunately, in the regular price point, there's not a there's a reasonable number of tartans, but not an infinite number of tartans. Yeah, we've had like the, um, the Clan Irwin Society. Um, they went together yep. and they got uh, PV woven, and then we've had a few other associations come together and some pipe bands get uh, PV cloth woven up, and so that you know that opens up a little bit more there, but. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Hope it helps. Mr. Mack. All right. We got Christopher Hills asking, can you tell us the difference between War One era kilts and modern kilts? Can I? I don't know. Would you Would you like to take a stab at it? Um, World War One kilts? World War One, yes. <clears throat> um, well, the straps, definitely different. Um, the Mack is the historian. Mack is the reenactor, not me. Um. <laughs> I know enough to be dangerous, but not, not that much. Um, so I'm going to make my bullet point list and let you say whether I'm right or wrong. Okay. Um, so differences between current contemporary kilts and World War I. Mm -hmm. um, the straps. Well, the stra I'm going to guess he's, me he's meaning military kilts. So yeah, yeah. Okay. So. Well, he's at World War I, so yeah, yeah military. Okay. So I'm going to say the straps, the color of the straps, the number of holes in the straps, mm -hmm. the style of buckle. Um, the placement of the straps, meaning four inch rise versus not four versus two mm. inch rise. Um, the banding, the waistband at the top of the kilt, mm -hmm. potentially the type of pleating, um, the tartans that are available, obviously military mm -hmm. tartans are a lot less. Um, and these, the type of the weight of the cloth, um, and, or the color of the straps. I don't know if I said that black versus like tan yeah or like brown leather mm -hmm. um and or the fabric ties that could be on some mm -hmm. pleating to the set versus pleating to the stripe and style i think i said style like rolled or military box plate versus standard knife plate yeah i mean for them how'd i do you did pretty good yes there's the difference between the two yes and no um some stuff is done Similarly than what we do now, some stuff hasn't changed at all the way we do stuff. Um, I've seen the gamut of one strap, two straps, three straps, no straps, using webbing for straps. Um, using we've looked at a there was a tool tape or webbing like not they didn't have nylon webbing. It would have been, it would have been webbing. It was uh, they used a lot of times uh, you see field made ones where they took their um, their equipment straps. And would cut okay. them off old pieces of equipment and reuse those <clears throat> those straps as on the kilt. Then, yep. Um, we have seen a was a manufacturer out of Philadelphia that was supplying kilts to the what I Canadians? believe 
What's that? Was it the Canadians they were supplying? I believe it was the Canadians. It makes more sense that way than to the British government. Um, but they were issuing it to the, uh, the CEF, and they have their own weird version of a strap, which is just cloth. They took a piece of the scrap of the, of the tartan and made their own their own strap out of it. Um, and then you see usually a two-prong type uh, buckle on them versus a single prong, which is m- most people use now. Uh, pleading as far as... I've talked to the curator at the Black Watch Museum in Perth, and they have seen... They had four kilts from one unit, specifically one unit, they were all made differently. So you had one that was knife pleated, one that was rolled pleated, one that was box pleated. So you get that variant in that. Then you get one, you get three of them that were pleated to the stripe. One was pleated to the set. So you have variances all in that for just one unit. But <clears throat> the basic construction of a kilt is the same then as it is now. It's just the little the little details are different. Yeah. The the thing that I find most um, uh, amusing, the, the biggest fallacy, I guess, that would be put forward that I find most amusing is that, like, this is how it was done. This is the military-style kilt. There's only one way to do it, and that's completely wrong. There are literally, like, dozens, like, currently, there are dozens of different kilt companies making kilts for the Scottish military, and... I know several of them, and they're all doing them differently. They all have their own ways mm-hmm. to do it. Ultimately, what you get is what looks like a kilt from outward appearance, and they're all going to be very, very similar. And to the untrained eye, it's going to look effectively the same. But there's a lot of internal steps. There's a lot of little tiny things that are different from one manufacturer to the next. Um, you know, just like you know, Ford makes a different car than Chevy, but they both go down the highway. So it's there's a lot of little tiny differences that really are uh, magnified when you start you know really paying attention to it and the general public the, the this there's this weird just assumption that it's all the exact same. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's a it's something that I struggle at least in the in the reenacting community where it, it's it's fantasized like it's oh it has to be the, this is how it was done. No, it's not. It's once you get into especially into the into you know, 19, you know, 14, 15, you're really starting, they're subcontracting out. So you're getting this kilt maker, this kilt maker, this kilt maker, this kilt maker, and you're getting all the mills weaving different stuff. They just want it to look the same. They don't care how the end product is. It just has to look the same. Yep. That's the end result. Yep. So, exactly. Hope that helps. (laughs) Sure it does. (laughs) Mr. Lucas. All right. <clears throat> Another question here from Toby. And to- Another scotch here for Rocky. All right. <laughs> it is 5 o'clock somewhere, and it's drink o'clock here. Stress relief. Drink o'clock here. Yes. All right. All right. Uh, Toby is asking, can you explain the holes on the end of a kilt edge? Was this where the kilt was pulled? Does it go away as a PV kilt is worn? What's his name again? I'm sorry. Toby, I think. Toby? That was Toby. Yep. Toby. Cheers, Toby. We have a cat here in the <laughs> shop, and he grabs each piece of cloth individually. No. 
Um, Luke is having Benadryl. I don't need my Benadryl attack. Benadryl. <laughs> Double dose. <laughs> the, um, the little tiny zigzag perforation holes in the bottom of a polyviscose kilt or in the bottom of a wool kilt are actually artifacts from the weaving process. The mill weaves the cloth, and then once it's all done and it's been woven, they send it off to the finishers. Now, at the finishers, they actually grab or take the cloth and they put it on what are called tenter hooks. Those are little tiny, like basically think of them as little like uh, curved nails. Um, and they put and they, they come in a zigzag pattern and it grabs the edge of the cloth and it holds it and it stretches it. The mill or the, uh, the finisher treats the cloth, washes the cloth, sets the dyes, like does all kinds of different stuff to the cloth at the finishers, but it ends up with these little tiny zigzag holes from where the tenter hooks were pulling the cloth to stretch it. Even so far as if, let's say the mill weaves <clears throat> um, uh, 200 yards of black watch and it came out at 53 inches after it's been washed and it shrank down a little bit and the, and the, ten, the, uh, the finisher says, oh shoot, it's supposed to be 54. They'll actually put it on tenter hooks and stretch the cloth to make it 54 inches finished product. So that is what those holes are from. They won't ever get bigger. They are going to, st in the polyviscose fabric, because it's man-made, machine-washable fabric, those holes are going to stay there. They're going to close up a little bit over time, but they will still be there, you know, five years from now. They're not going to get worse. They're not going to fray. They're not going to, you know, it's not a damage to the kilt that's going to look any worse, but they're still going to remain there. Wool kilts will still have those. <clears throat> now, it's not something that's, um, I lost my train of thought. Lost it. Done. Um, the, but it's, it's not going to affect the finished product of the kilt. Oh, I know what I was going to say. In other industries, tailoring, you know, when you're making suits, when you're making shirts, when you're making pants, when you're making jackets, whatever, the fabric that you use, usually you actually cut pieces out of the fabric running lengthwise down the fabric. Mac mm -hmm. does pattern work, so he knows. He'll back me up. Yeah. Um, you're cutting pattern pieces down the length of the fabric, and they're not using the very edge. They just cut that off and effectively throw it out. They don't care because it's imperfect. In traditional kilts, you're using the bottom edge of the cloth. You're using that selvage edge. So it's going to still contain those little tiny zigzag tentacle holes. Yeah, I mean, in PV, you're going to notice it a lot more than the iron wool, and it's going to stay longer in, in PV uh, versus the wool. wool. Some of the wool, well, by the time we get it, we don't even notice it. Um, there's very little in wool that we still see those those little holes. Um, when we were up actually in Allentown, uh, look, talking to one of the cut and sew operations up there, they had their tables with stacks of fleece up there. The bottom edge of the fleece, you could see those... Those those marks in it. Yep. Um, so it's but as Rocky said, they're cutting out patterns. So they're cutting out, you know, cakes worth of, of material, but you, they're cutting it out and they're they're wasting about that much on the edge that is just getting tossed. So you never see that part. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's they're gonna you're gonna see them on PV. Now what about? You see them, but it's only if your eyeballs are right literally there. like right there, like you know, it's eight inches away from it, 
and or you're holding it up to a light and you're looking through it. If anyone's eyeballs are that close <laughs> to the bottom of your kilt, either A, you got a big problem, or B, they're not paying attention to the bottom of the kilt. One you of those two friend. scenarios. So it's something that you're going to notice if you're inspecting the bottom of the kilt, but it's not something that you get you know, your hackles up over. Now, what about that line that runs just right above there? That you you kind of can see everything. Oh, if it's a if it's woven on a, a rapier loom. Yeah. Now the the zigzag hooks are going to be there, period. Yes. Um, <clears throat> the little line Mac is referring to is there's different types of looms. There's lino salvage. There's a rapier loom. There's a dob cross loom. There's different types of looms that weave different ways. Traditionally speaking, you know, way back when the shuttle went across the entire width of the fabric when it's weaving, it went across the entire width, turned around came back down, turned around, went back up, turned around, came back down, or across, across, didn't go up and down, um, which was one continuous thread, back, forth, back, forth, back, forth. High-speed current, you know, like industrial looms that are manufactured today have um, what's called a, a, a tuck-in selvage, or a, they're a rapier loom. So basically, instead of one continuous piece of cloth going back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, it injects one thread chops it off about a centimeter past the edge of the end of the of the uh, the warp threads and then it tucks it back in so and then it does the next thread cuts it tucks it back in so what you end up with is a little tiny line about a centimeter up from the bottom of the edge of the cloth which has a little bit of like fuzziness to it is the best way to describe it yeah um Again, that's not going to get any worse or better over time. It's just, it is what it is, but it's done on a high-speed rapier loom, which is the majority of looms that are, you know, produced nowadays. The dob cross looms were much slower. They produced a better quality of cloth in the, in the finished edge, but they were much slower, um, and the mills were making a lot less money because it would take, you know, longer to weave a piece of cloth. Now... Some of the mills over in Scotland, specifically House of Edgar and Loch Heron, have basically bastardized, you know, uh, they've, yeah. <laughs> they've uh, morphed. What's the word I'm looking for? Not bastardized. Um, they've adapted. Yes. <clears throat> they've, ad they've improved <laughs> the rapier loom. So it's basically, it just weaves single width cloth. But instead of having... Um, uh, the, the little tuck-in at the very bottom edge, the the uh, the thing injects the piece of cloth or in, in piece of, piece of yarn, and then it actually pulls it straight back through. So you're going to end up with one edge that is perfect, and another edge that has little cut edges right on the very end. It's like it looks like a fringed edge. So the thread is actually like a U. It's just a bunch of series of U's that go up and down. Yeah, good way to describe it. So now the advantage to that is you have a very very nice traditional selvage edge to the cloth and you have one edge which is looks bad but you end up cutting that off anyway or that's what you use for the waistband the negative part about doing that is the cloth is only single width single width meaning 30 inches ish yeah. wide now it's not a problem for kilts and it actually it's, it's an advantage for kilt makers because we don't have to splice it there's no wastage the bad part is when you need the cloth to be double width whether it's for piper's plates, fly plates, great kilt, great kilt, cutting out patterns, that kind of thing, you end up with a splice right in the middle. Now, actually, for great kilts, 
that's kind of traditional anyway, because yes. way back when, you know, material was woven 30 inches yeah. wide, 28 inches wide. So they ended up splicing the fabric together, and that's how you would get double width cloth for a great kilt. Um, but nowadays, if you need double width cloth, it is not ideal, but it is what it is. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know how to wrap that up. <laughs> that's what it is. So, <laughs> chew on that. Buddy, <laughs> I hope that answer helps. <laughs> Mr. Mac, All next right. one. So we have Jason asking. <clears throat> uh, he is going to a wedding as a guest. He's been given permission to go kilted, but was asked to come semi-formal. How would you interpret semi-formal kilt attire? Semi-formal kilt attire. Um, today, in the U.S. especially, um, the, the, the levels of formal semi-formal, casual, dressy casual, smart day, like all that, it, the lines are so blurred. It really depends on the individual sending out the thing. Um, I remember Adam had a story where his brother kept saying, oh, just, just come to our wedding. It's just going to, it's, it's formal. It's, it, it's black tie. It's fine. And Adam's like, do you mean like semi-formal? He's like, no, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. Like just wear like a nice suit. It's black tie. It's fine. No, what you're referring to is like semi-formal or, or business, you know, business dress. It's not really formal. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's you know, just a regular. I'm going to put that there. Just put that right there. Thank you. Um, it's just like wear a regular necktie. It's, it's, it's formal. And people don't necessarily get it. <clears throat> so verify with the host what they actually mean by semi-formal. Now, that being said, if they actually mean semi-formal, then what I would suggest is either a, a nice tweed and a semi-dress sporin or an argyle jacket and vest with a straight necktie, not a bow tie, not a Prince Charlie, not a regulation doublet, but an argyle at best or a tweed jacket and vest at worst. I don't want to say worst, but at, at least. Um, that would be, in my estimation, semi-formal. Um, sporin-wise, semi-dress, Maybe a hunting sporin, um, hunting sporin with fur, like what Mac has mm -hmm. on over there. Um, those would be good options for a semi-dress, not semi-dress, semi-formal type event. Yeah, I mean, even like a Wallace jacket, I think would be fine because I think I think some people associate black with being formal. So even like like a Wallace jacket or, or an argyle that's black could be to some people is fancy. That's formal. Um, where like fancy. A where a tweed may be, you know, a little bit more earthy. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those types of tones, the, uh, um, and making sure your leathers match is, is one thing we talked about uh, earlier today. Um, but you know, having, make sure, you know, if you're wearing a brown sporn, you got a brown belt or a combination brown black belt type thing. Um, but just, and your shoes, the, the other thing, you know, make sure yeah. your shoes are, or brown or, or black, depending on what you're wearing. But it's... Now, would you wear a... This is more, maybe more of a question for Eric, um, but he's not here. God rest his soul. <laughs> he's at home. He's working from home. He's not dead. Um, he may not even have pants on. We don't know. That's true. <laughs> you guys got to pour one out for Eric. <laughs> for my homies. I'm not pouring out scotch. Are you kidding me? Get out of here. I don't know you anymore. Um, <clears throat> you might where the heck now. was I going with this? Um, the uh, would you wear brown 
to a semi-formal event. Brown leathers. The last wedding I went to, I did wear brown. I had a brown black uh, belt on. Okay. I had my I had my day brogues. I didn't have billy okay. brogues. Okay. Uh, and I had my brown um, or one sporn on. Okay. Um, so it was all. But also wore tweed, uh, tweed jacket and vest. Yeah. Uh, so it was all, all, all whole package went together. I think that's more what we're um, kind of getting at is make sure the package. It looks, looks well put together. It looks together. Yeah. Um, not have, you know, discombobulated. Don't be discombobulation. <laughs> um, now, it's ultimately for the U.S. especially. Um, remember, when you're going to a wedding, I'm assuming there's not going to be too many guys in kilts there, if anyone else in a kilt. If you're the only guy in a kilt, it won't matter whether you're wearing brown leathers and a tweed or black leathers and an argyle. You're going to be the best dressed dude in the room. Just by the nature of wearing a kilt, you're going to get more attention. You're going to look good. And ultimately, a lot of this is just the attitude and owning the look. So if you look like you know what you're doing and you present yourself like you know what you're doing, people will just assume you know what you're doing because, frankly, they have no idea. They've probably never seen a kilt in person before. And you're that guy who's wearing the kilt, so you're going to get the next round at the bar. I did have a guy at a wedding I went to, uh, I was coming out of the bathroom as he was heading in, and he was cursing me out because I was the best-dressed guest there just by wearing a kilt, and he was now afraid that I was going to pick up all the ladies. All the women. Yes. And I was like, that's fine, you can have them. I'm good. I'm, <laughs> my wife I'm, would be a little My wife upset. is here. She may be mildly <laughs> perturbed if I pick up multiple women yeah. at a wedding. <laughs> so... You just don't want to look better than the bride, but close. <laughs> Fair point. Now, you, you want to make sure that the bride and the groomer yeah. are comfortable with what you're doing. Um, and I think it sounds like that based on the question of, you know, they've said to wear the kilt and be semi-formal. So you're going to be in, uh, uh, in good hands there. And just mm. look like you, you know, drive it like you stole it. You know, look like you know what you're doing and you'll be fine. Mr. Lucas, next one. Drive it like you stole it. Drive it like you stole it. <laughs> wow. You never de- heard that before? You've defined my morning commute. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> my, my other phrase here. Hold on. The, the, my favorite phrase that made Lucas recoil in horror was, we are building the airplane as we are going down the runway. <laughs> the man's eyes bulged out of his head. Like, that is a horrible analogy. <laughs> I forbid you! I forbid you! Do you hear me? I forbid you! You never want to do that! It's sometimes what you got to do. Yeah, we've mm. we've experienced that and the uh, the, joy, yep. the joy of flight again and again and again. Yes, yeah. and uh, the, uh, uh, the, the funny thing, touching on the, the us making masks thing, um, we started making masks or, or conceived of the idea... A Saturday, two like, Saturdays ago, two Saturdays ago, yeah. and so, like had the supply chain had everything effectively up and running, kind of, and they were all getting up and running simultaneously. And I joked with Lucas. I said, "Look, you know, you thought the other analogy was bad. We are no longer building the airplane as we're going down the runway. We are physically scooping up parts and <laughs> bolting them onto the craft as we are driving down the runway, hurtling towards a cliff." 
This is going to be held together with duct tape and bubble gum. But God, by God, I'm going to make it work. Mm-hmm. We're going to need more bubble gum. So <laughs> y'all get can... to chewing, <laughs> yep, son. Send it in. Uh, you guys ready for another question? Sure. Okay. All righty. Uh, this question comes from Ryan, and he's saying, just curious, what's your opinion on wearing a regular T-shirt over the belt of a kilt? Like, say, you wear a plain belt, but the graphics of the shirt are blocked if it's tucked in. It, that's a tough one. The uh, uh, my, my OCD-ness kind of, like, kicks in, and I have a little, little head tweak there. <laughs> um, the When we design T-shirts for USA kilts, we specifically make sure... The graphics are higher on the shirt so that they can be worn both with kilts or with jeans. Um, if the if the graphics on the shirt get tucked in, I don't know. It depends on it depends on what you're doing. The if they're tucked in and it's it's screwing up the look of the shirt. You can't tell what it is. Like that's the the punchline to the joke is on the bottom and it's tucked in. Um, frankly speaking, if you're going somewhere where you want to look reasonably put together, I'd say pick another shirt. If you're going to be somewhere where it's just super casual, like you're going to the beach, um, kind of casual, like flip-flops and a kilt, God help me, I just said that. <laughs> um, but if it's super, super casual and you're wearing a T-shirt with a kilt and you want to untuck it and you're going to wear... Um, you know, a pair of, you know, sneakers and, and it's, it is the casualest of casualness. Um, sure. Untuck the shirt. My only, my only thing I would say is the same thing I do with hockey jerseys, tuck it in behind the sporin. So at least you're allowing the sporin to show and the front of the kilt to show. You don't want a shirt that's like too long and covering it up. Looks like you're wearing a night shirt. Um, but ultimately if it's, I don't like the look of untucked shirts with a kilt, so ideally pick a different shirt. I think it depends on the length of the t-shirt. If it's a shorter cut t-shirt that really doesn't stay tucked in to begin with and just kind of hangs out about You're belt wearing level, a kilt two inches above your belly button. I know, but if I'm wearing a casual, if I'm wearing a casual and it's down lower. Dude, that's a tube top if that ain't gets <laughs> hey, that's not tucked in with a kilt. You got to rock it. If you got it, you got to rock it. Coraline. <laughs> I want graphics of Mac in a tube top in a kilt. Insert here. There's a new image for the wall. <laughs> I'm sorry to the viewers after this who have to suffer through that. No, I'm not. I, I love torturing people. Go ahead. You were saying. <clears throat> but like some vintage shirts are a little bit shorter. So that since the vintage shirts are the, the in thing, they're not as long. What all the kids are wearing these days? That's right. All those... This, like the but they're look. not. But they're still not two inches above the belly button. No, they're not. But they're not also not as long as what modern, some of the modern shirts are too. Fair. Um, so it's a weird gray area. Gray area, nebulous middle region. It's like belt line. Yes, it's, um, it's the Narnia of <laughs> so like Exton. <laughs> I hope you're watching me. <clears throat> um, or Ron. Yes. Um, I think if I'm going to like the pub or if I'm going to a show. And it comes out because you know you're in the mosh pit or you're just running around or whatever. Then I don't think it's as bad. But yeah, typically I tuck my shirts in if I'm wearing a kilt, um, regardless of of what it is, whether it's a button up or a t-shirt, um, even polo I'll, I'll tuck in. But it's 
Yeah, I think tucked in is the yeah. way to go. It, it's the overall, the, <clears throat> the overall owning it type thing again. Yeah. It just, you look more put together. Side story. Okay, I don't know where oh, we're going. Oh, 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 oh. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to censor myself on this story. That's how bad <laughs> it is. Um, I'll make it short and say, uh, if you're wearing a kilt to a, to a concert, to a show, don't go crowd surfing <laughs> in the kilt. Especially depending on what you are or are not wearing. You don't want you to do funny and hang out? Under kilt. Yes. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm censoring and stopping right there. My apologies to Ken Casey from the Dropkick Murphys. There, there's a much longer story there that it's 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 PG thirteen at least. So let's let's move on, shall we? <laughs> yes. That's for an episode of uh, Kilts and Culture Nightlife. <laughs> After dark. <laughs> it's like Skinamax, but with kilts. <laughs> I'm sorry, everyone. Mr. Lucas, next question. Yeah, looks like we have a question actually from Lucas. Uh, can we have Coraline not make that <laughs> picture of Mac? It's more of a comment. Okay. And uh, uh, King trumps Jack. So, Coraline, you're going to oh, make that graphic. Oh, dear. <laughs> Wear okay. glasses. Okay. <laughs> Protective eyewear <laughs> while doing that. Let's see here. All right. We have a question here from David. And David is asking... Why are some hunting sporins egg-shaped and others have the same radius top and bottom line like the one that yep. Mac is wearing right now? Yep. <clears throat> um, why are sporins the way they are? Um, it's It really boils down to manufacturer. Um, there are certain, if you actually, if let's extend that. Look at dress sporins. Um, I can tell who made a dress sporin, which company made it, based on the shape of the sporin. Some are just straight ovals. Some are teardrop-shaped. Some are a wide teardrop versus a kind of minimalist teardrop. Same thing goes with the hunting sporins. Some have a narrower leather cantle area, and then they kind of bail out at the bottom into a teardrop. Others are more just straight oval. It just boils down to the manufacturer. There is no right or wrong way to do it. It's just it is what it is. Um, it just depends on the manufacturer, their preferred shape. Some manufacturers do, you know, multiple shapes across their lines, depending on which customer is buying it. There's no one way to skin a cat. It's just, it is what it is. So aesthetically, some people like one, some people like another. So why not have both? I mean, even historically, you see them all over the place. You see them all kinds of different patterns. Yeah. Like from from even acorn shaped, where it's a little bit more, it kind of bellows out and and curves in and kind of points towards the bottom and the top flat. Like that, my War One sporn is actually kind of shaped that way, where it's it kind of bellows out and comes in. But a hunting sporn or a dress? No, that was that was a uh, day sporn. Okay, Um, that's fine. I'm thinking like. But I'm just saying. I'm just saying in general, you get you have all kinds of shapes, so it gets. Like you're saying, it's, it's the manufacturer, wherever they've learned from, you kind of repeat some of the tendencies, and you you've, you change a little bit, but whoever you know that company learned from now is doing it this way. Or if you made your own up. If you said, yeah. you know what, everyone's doing it this way, 
I want to do it slightly different just so I'm different from everybody else. This is my particular style, my particular shape. That's how things evolve. It's you want to do something a little bit different than everyone else. Um, the fur hunting sporn, what Mac is wearing now, or the bovine version of that, um, was something I designed. You know, this is, you know, patting myself on the back here. Something that I designed because I went to our sporn maker and I said, Greg, I want something that is, I, I like the hunting sporn. I wear it a lot, but I want to dress it up a little bit. So give me fur on the lower part and, you know, the, the leather on the top part and then and, uh, leather leaves. So it's things evolve over time. Things just kind of, you come up with a new idea, a new concept, a new shape, whatever, and it either catches on or it doesn't. And he ended up adding it as part of his regular range just because he liked how it looked so much. Um, our broad flap day sporin, um, which is basically the, the military day sporins that we have on the website, um, have a, a, a the, the flap that goes over the front is almost the entire length of the body of the sporin to be able to have a bigger design on the front. Um, and again, uh, the sporin makers in Scotland kind of said like, hmm, that actually looks pretty cool. We're going to start doing a few of those as well with our own designs on them. So things evolve, things change, and it's not, there's not one way to do it. There's no one way to skin a cat. You can do it a bunch of different ways, and it's still, as long as it looks like a sporin, talks like a sporin, and quacks like a sporin, it's a sporin. Doesn't moo like a sporin? Just cut it. No, no. Well, it could moo like a sporin. Yeah, it could. From cow. Yeah. I don't, I don't, well, this one we have to learn what the fox says for this one. Or we get pigskin. Wait, 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 wait. No. I do great pig noises. I had, I had to work in my pig noises somehow. I hope that's not the clip Coraline uses for the beginning of that clip. Wait, wait. Ah, uh, yes. Lucas right. looks confused over there. Lucas always looks confused when I, whenever I talk. He's just like either shuddering or confused. So from this angle, he's kind of like the neighbor on uh, on Home Improvement. Oh, uh, Wilson! Is, yeah. Wilson, yeah. <laughs> hey, Lucas. It's Heidi Ho, neighbor. <laughs> Listening. I think that was Ned Flanders. That was. That's true. Uh, it's, it's just all the same lines. Yeah, yeah, Home Improvement guy just listening to crazy stuff and trying mm -hmm. to offer words of advice. You know, just like the show. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Next question up. Um, October rain rocks. That's his... Oh, oh that's the question. question. I'm like, yes, no. October rain, yeah! <laughs> He's asking, have you guys ever done any videos on how to look after your kilt, washing and drying? Um, he is new to the channel, so hasn't gotten a chance to see if there's any up there yet. Sure. <clears throat> um, I believe so. Um, basically, if you can, depending on what type of kilt it is, if it's a wool kilt, that we... Now, I will only talk to the ones we have made. So if you got it somewhere else... Talk to them, not me. Um, if it's a wool kilt, you can either dry clean it or wet wash it if you know what you're doing. I think we've actually done videos on how to do that. We're eventually going to come out with a, a longer video series on how to wet wash kilts, um, that kind of thing, how to press kilts. If it is a polyviscose machine washable kilt, machine wash it um, and then lay it flat to dry on the back of the sofa um, and... Press it with a, a damp press cloth. Check out the YouTube videos. There are some out there on it that we I know we have done on that particular topic. Yeah, just no fabric softener on it. Yes. That'll, that'll take the uh, Teflon off. Yep. 
Mr. Mac. Alrighty, so we have uh, <clears throat> Michael asking here. Hold, pause. And, what was his name? October Rain. October Rain, Satan Devil Horns 72. <laughs> Thank you for watching. Enjoy. Mr. Mac, next question. Alright, so you have Michael asking. I understand that tartan is a weaving pattern repeated, repeated horizontally as well as vertically, warp and weft. If I want a... If I want a set design with a horizontal blue line and yellow stripes and a vertical green line and red stripes, is this technically possible? If it is technically possible, is it still considered a tartan? Yes. Um, if you actually look at the Welsh tartans, um, they have a different warp and weft. Traditionally, from like 90, 1995 and previous, tartans were effectively defined as a warp, which is the long uh, threads that go down the tartan, and the weft, which is the, the quick ones that go up and down the bolt or across the bolt of the cloth. Um, they were effectively the same. So you would have a warp and weft that were the same, which made a gridular pattern. We need the gridular graphic here. Um, the gridular pattern, and it was... Do we have a gridular graphic? I don't think we do. You have to make know. a gridular graphic. Um, anyway, the they they were the same. Yes, warp and weft. In the late '90s, mid '90s, the Welsh Tartan Centre, or two gentlemen who sold it to the Welsh Tartan Centre, designed Welsh tartans. And to be different than the Scottish tartans and the Irish tartans that were out, they made a different warp and weft. So their kilts have a slightly vertical, stripey kind of effect to it. Is the best way to put it where the warp and the weft are different. So, yes, you can do that. It is not common. Most tartan generators that you'll see online do not allow you to do that, but a mill can actually produce that. So, yes, it can be done. I I think you've got to think of the finished product on this in the end because how your horizontal versus your vertical is going to look when it's pleated and when the finished product's done, what you're going for. Because you can get a very dominant line going horizontal across the kilt, and which makes the, the lawn chair effect that we've talked about on here, where it makes you, it makes you look wider than what you are. Uh, so you, you've got to think, I think in this <clears throat> aspect, you got to think a little bit more of where you want the more dominant colors. You want them, if you're using grays or lighter colors, and make sure they're going vertically, not horizontally, in this aspect. Now, specifically, correct me if I'm wrong, he was talking about the stripes repeating vertical versus horizontal. And he's using, I, he's using blue and yellow horizontally, and green and red vertically. For stripes, that's for the main colors. He said horizontal, blue and yellow stripes, and then vertically, green and red stripes. Okay, um, stripes, I don't know whether he means, like, stripes as far as, like, you know, a stripe or a stripe. Yeah, it depends yeah, on the it width depends of a it. a field or a stripe. Yeah. Now, one thing I will point out is that a lot of non, uh, non-traditional Scottish tartan fabrics, specifically Catholic schoolgirl uniforms, have, you know, basically, I, I've seen a lot of them, where it's the vertical stripes are all yellow, but the horizontal stripes are either all red or are yellow-red repeating up the cloth. 
So it can give a weird and or Catholic schoolgirl vibe to the fabric. So can you do it? Sure. Should you do it? Maybe, but it's going to be tricky to pull off. That's ultimately where I'm going to land on it. Yeah, it's just a lot more thought process behind it. Yep. Cool. Mr. Mac, next question. Alrighty. Um, we have Lucas. As Lucas slams down the rest of his Jameson <laughs> over there. Is there a systematic way to pleat a great kilt to the stripe? Yes. Is there a systematic way to pleat it to the stripe? When you're pleating a great kilt, you basically take your belt, lay it on the floor. And then a great kilt, all it is, is five, six, seven yards of cloth that you actually hand pleat on the ground on top of the belt. Once it's actually pleated, well, you have a, a flat section that is the front apron, a pleated section, which you actually sit there and kneel and hand pleat, and then you leave a flat section at the end, which is the under apron. You lay down on the belt, you put the under apron over this way, or, well, over this way, you put the over apron or front apron over that way, and then you attach your belt and you stand up. Um, how it is pleated is a little bit tricky on a great kilt. Let's say you're looking at a, a, a tartan with a, it's very boring, and there's a dominant white stripe, something like Lament or Lamont, if you want to say it that way for the Americans. The way to pleat it to that white stripe, remember, what you're seeing on the inside is the opposite of what you're going to see on the outside. So for Lamont, you have a, or Lament, you have a white stripe in the center of the green, and then you have navy blue in the other section, a navy blue field. So how I would pleat it while looking at the backside, which is what you're actually going to be laying your body down on, is grab the navy blue section and pleat to the navy blue section on the inside. When you put your belt on and stand up, the opposite pivot, which will be the white stripe, is what will be on the outside of the kilt for the pleating section there. So that would be my suggestion on how to pleat it to a particular stripe is you grab the section that is opposite of that stripe. In other words, if it's an eight inch set, so at four inches, you have navy blue and at the eight inch mark, you have a white stripe. You grab every, you grab the four inch section, pull it over, move over eight inches to the next navy blue section, pull it over and you keep going that way. When you put your belt on and you stand up, on the back side, you're going to have the white stripes. Yeah, you're kind of building it, you're doing it in reverse. Yep. So it's like painting on glass. You want to start with, we had a reference this earlier, so it made me think of it. It's, you got to start with what you want to see and work backwards. So you've got to, you've got to look at it from the opposite side, which it, it's going to take some practice. So, you know, you're going to have to kind of, do it a couple times. But once you get the hang of it, and once you understand it, it's going to be a breeze. Agreed. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Lucas. All right. Next question is coming in here. It's from Dan. And Dan is asking, how much weight can the average man gain, lose, without needing an additional <clears throat> kill? The weight gain and loss is always a difficult one with kilts. When we make kilts, the, the, the holes on the straps are span about three inches or so. Mm -hmm. So 
If it spans three inches, we're gonna try to make your measurement to the middle hole on the strap. So if you gain an inch and a half or lose an inch and a half, the kilt should still fit you. If you gain a little bit more or lose a little bit more than that, let, let's say you gain or lose two and a half inches, um, you can always move the buckles on the right-hand side and move the strap that's on the left-hand side of the kilt. If you gain or lose a good bit more than that, then you're gonna have to move things further or if you lose, you know, 50 pounds and you weighed 200 pounds, it, it may be time for a new kilt at that point. Yeah, there's always room. I'd say there's always room. There's always more room to go down than there is to go out um, to an extent. Because yeah. once you expand to a certain size, I, there's not enough on the under apron in cases where that I can expand it out or we can expand it out. It, it, it going in when you're going smaller when you're contracting there's at some point your 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 front apron is going to start wrapping around your body and you're going to have less and less pleats showing so Sorry, at that, at that point you're almost looking at a rebuild in certain aspects of yeah. reconfiguring some things and and that can get pretty pricey at that point and then at that point you might you're sometimes you're looking at just better off just getting a new kilt um it just depends on, on the range of your expansion and contraction yeah or if you expand too much there is no rebuild yeah because you need either a to order more cloth um and you hope it matches the existing cloth yeah. depending on the age of the kilt or b you're actually needing to like widen each pleat so it's literally you're tearing the whole thing apart and putting it all back together and at that point just just get a new kilt and sell that one or if it's a family heirloom put it to the side and buy yourself a new kilt yeah because you know we, it, we already sent lucas out once to look for the tartan stretcher and he's still looking for that joann's did not have it no sorry to say <laughs> damn it joann's <laughs> they never have what you need muslin cloth out the wazoo no tartan stretchers <laughs> useless I hope that answer helps. Mr. Mack, next one. Alrighty, we have David asking, do you wear Swiss, yeah. Do you have a specific tartan you wear for formal events or do you pick them up or do you pick them as you... I am not reading here. Do you have a specific tartan you wear for Mac formal events? Mack third grade. <laughs> and it was a while ago. Or do you pick them as you do casually? <clears throat> um, for myself personally, I, I wear for formal events or, or dressy events, um, it, it kind of depends partially on what my wife is wearing, partially on the mood I'm in, partially on what's clean. Um, so it's, it really boils down to what I want to wear, what the event is. Um, if my wife is wearing earthy kind of tones or wearing something darker, um, I'll wear, you know, either a, a weathered tartan, my Scott weathered. Um, with with black and browns and grays in it um, if she's wearing something a little bit more flamboyant or you know brighter I'll wear you know Celtic nations or something with more color in it um, I have a lot of different kilts you know ranging from very very somber and dark to you know crazy bright colors um, it also depends on what I have that is clean at the time um, yeah how do you pick uh it's very similar in, in figuring out what my wife's wearing, 
or <clears throat> if I know there's a particular color palette to that event that I'm going to, sometimes I'll, I'll wear something that's more geared to the palette. Uh, weddings are, are usually a little bit more geared towards palettes. Um, I know for someone that's behind the camera over there wouldn't let me wear a certain kilt to an event because he was wearing it too. I mean, just because it was his wedding, Lucas, um, wouldn't let me wear mine. Um, me, 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 it's my wedding. Don't dress the same as me. <laughs> what a loser. <laughs> my wife might get confused. <laughs> um, or, in Lucas's case, you just figure out which, t which uh, you know, kilt is ironed, and that's the one you wear. Um, so it's... Now we're talking. So, so, so all one of his kilts. Yes. <laughs> the boy has an ironing hey, if deficiency. Hey, if I keep buying new ones, I mean... That's true. You can't complain, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Is that an iron deficiency? <laughs> I hear there's a supplement for that. It's more kilts. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But yeah, it, for me, it's it's just it's, and I'll usually gear towards eight yarders versus my five yarders in certain aspects yeah. too. Yeah. Um, especially if it's more of a formal wedding. More, more fancier event. I'll, I'll gear towards the eight yarders versus my five yarders. And it depends on what, uh, even even going beyond that, depends on what I have that's going to match it. If I have a tweed jacket that works real well with a five yard kilt, and it's a semi formal kind of event, and I want to wear my tweed, then I would wear the five yard kilt with the tweed. If it's something that is a little bit more regal, and I'm wearing a you know a, a regulation doublet in black. And I really like this particular kilt, and it's the uh, my eight yard kilt. It's the only you know super duper fancy one that I own. Sure, I'll wear that one. Mm -hmm. Hope that helps, Mr. Mac. All right, we have Thomas uh, asking. I have been designing a personal tartan. Can you discuss marled threads in a worsted wool versus tweed fabrics? He says he likes the visual texture of tweed, but would want to would want the harder worsted material for a kilt. Are there worsted okay. marled threads available for tartan? Um, yes, there are some worsted marled threads available for tartan. Um, <clears throat> tweed has a has a specific kind of earthy feel to it, and has some flecks of different colors and things like that in the tartan. And a lot of tweed tartans end up having this kind of scratchy look. Not, doesn't, it doesn't feel scratchy, but a scratchy look to it. Um, one mill specific, well, not one mill, there's actually a couple. Um, uh, La Caron does a marled yarn. Marled means that there's two, two colors twisted together. So pick a lighter gray and a medium gray, twist them together, and when you weave that, you get this kind of like scratchy look to it. It doesn't feel scratchy, but it looks scratchy. House of Edgar did that same thing with a whole new range of tartans um, where they used marled yarns to weave a few different tartans. And it's still worsted cloth. It's still a high quality kilt making cloth. Um, and it's got a different kind of effect to the color of it. I'm a reasonable fan of some of them. Some of their offerings, meh, um, but it's it's just it's neat and it's different. Um, and a lot of mills have gone to weaving tweed tartans as well, with the with the rise of tweed and the uh, uh, the the popularity of tweed tartans right now in the marketplace. A few mills have gone to that. House of Edgar went to 
marled yarns for regular tartans. So there's there's a variation, um, but it's you can have both. Um, they're they're not they're 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 unique animals. They're two different things. Now there's going to be a very very limited range on colors in marled yarns. There's also going to be the opportunity to mix marled as well as I'll call them flat colors in a yarn to give it a weird effect or a, a neat weird effect where it's like partial, like some fields are kind of scratchy looking and other fields are like flat looking. If you remember in the 1990s, like early 90s, those 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 3D posters that you look at where it's kind of, you, 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 you unfocus your eyes, you look all weird and trance-like, and you see a 3D image in it. That's kind of how this cloth looks, where it's some things are scratchy and three-dimensional and other things are not. It gives that, that, that cool, different, neat, weird effect all at the same time. Yeah, we've got one uh, that I think Ian has out that he's working on now um, that has that, that marled thread into it. Uh, that's one of the House of Edgar new yeah, collection. Yeah, it's. I'm torn on it. I kind of go back and forth if I like it or not because it does. Yeah, it, it's there's not to me on that one. There's not enough separation between the the base color, which is more of a brown, in that marled section. If it would be more of a contrast that makes them kind of both stand a little bit more, I think I would like it better. I think that's more where if you're designing something like that, you need that contrast. It does, in other aspects, it does give that nice 3D effect where it has two different color greens and has like a mint green where it kind of really gives that depth of field there. But it's, a lot of them are just too close in color between the marled and the, the other base color. I will I will say this as well. If you actually look at our Sterling Tartan or if you look at um, La Caron's Highland Granite Tartan, the, the key point there is the balance between... Yes flat colors and the marled colors. You want a balance between the two. The balance is what makes it interesting. If it's all marled, it becomes like muddied and scratchy looking. If it's all flat, it's normal. It's a regular tartan. Um, but having the, the, the balance, the difference between the two is what makes it visually interesting. And it's the, it's the subtle hint. It's not kicking you in the face with, Oh my God, this is like, it's, it, it looks weird. Why? It's the, huh, there's something different, but I can't quite put my finger on it. That's the balance that I want to see in it. As a designer, that's the key. I think Ster uh, Sterling is probably the best example of it. it, it it's nice balance of everything. I agree. I'm kind of, well, you know. You would. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, it's the key from a design aspect is not going too far one direction or too far the yeah. other. It's kind of how they work with each other. And the other thing I'll say is having a field of one and a field of another, not like little individual stripes won't give that much of a visual impact to the whole thing. So a field, a section of one of, of marled and a section of flat will give that balance. Whereas everything marled won't, or a bunch of little stripes won't give the same effect, the cumulative effect that, yeah. you know, offsetting sections would. Mm -hmm. Make sense? Yeah. Good. For me. Yes. We are tartan gods. <laughs> Not really. We just know what we like. Hope that helps. Mm -hmm. Mr. Lucas. All 
right. Give us the next one. Another question from Andrew, and Andrew is asking for a professional opinion. Pleating the Anderson Tartan to the white stripe, would it look good, or is the area around <coughs> it too busy? And I'm looking at the Anderson Tartan right behind Mac on the uh, the, tartan, the white the tartan to the shelf. white stripe to the white stripe. Yes. It, other other corner. Yeah, I know. Um, how's your back feel, Mac? Stretch around there. <clears throat> When you are deciding to pleat a tartan to the stripe or not, you can use what I call my Christmas tree trick. Squint at it. If there is a particular stripe that jumps off of the tartan at you individually, then it would look good pleated to that stripe. It's the same way you you judge your lights on the Christmas tree and your spacing of lights. Squint at the tree, and if you see a section that's a little bit darker, move some of your Christmas lights to that section. For Anderson, the white stripe is bordering on, almost bordering on that kind. It's right next to the yellow, and it's bordering on that blue section. So, in my opinion, Anderson looks better pleated to the set because what you're going to end up with if you pleat it to the white stripe is an unbalanced pleat where on one side you're going to grab a little bit of that blue on one side of the pleat and on the other side you're going to have the black and that yellow stripe. You can kind of pleat Anderson to the black stripe between the yellow and red or the yellow and white, but it's it's going to be a very very busy pleating style. So it would not be my preference. Anderson, to me, would look better to the set than it would to the stripe. Yeah, and you pointed out, you think you hit it, uh, you point out you hit it uh, nail square in the head there, is the unbalance of the pleat. It, it's, you always want something running center of that pleat. And with that, you're having two ele- your, well, three elements that are all in the same tone that kind of pop. Well, I'm, Black, I'm, yellow, white, and blue. If I mean, you play to the white stripe, yeah. But I'm saying yeah. if you if you use the black as more of the the contrast and, and use the yeah. yellow and the white as the pop, and well, it that, depends that, on the width too. Or the width that of the blue, blue is going to yeah. pop just as well. So you yep. kind of lose. I see the effect you're going for, but I think you're gonna you're gonna lose that effect completely because of the yellow and the blue are going to pop just as much as that white is. Yeah, and the other thing, well, the white will stand out a little bit more because it's white. It's yeah. the higher contrast. The other thing to point out is. Tartans that look good pleated to the stripe are a couple things I'll point out. One, the stripe is usually the pivot, meaning if you hold a mirror up right on that stripe, left and right will look the exact same. Mm -hmm. Anderson, if you hold the mirror up on that white stripe, the left side you're going to have blue, the the right side you're going to have the yellow stripe, and then the, the busyness, so it won't look great judging on that. Um, and the other thing that's, in my estimation, kind of key with pleading to the stripe is having a, a wide enough field around the stripe mm-hmm. that that is the only other element on the pleat. So using, again, uh, Lamont or Lament as the example, you have a white stripe in the middle of a green section. When you pleat it up and you take one inch or less than an inch of that section with a white stripe running right down the middle, all you're going to have is green. If you had a little bit of black or another color off to the side, what's going to happen is you're going to get spears. 
as you put the green section or in Anderson, using that as the example. In Anderson, if you centered that white stripe, you're going to have blue on the one side. And when you put that pleat next to the, ne next to the, 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 the following pleat, you're going to have the blue kind of disappear as it comes to the top. You're going to end up with spears of, you know, a, a quarter inch or an eighth of an inch down at the bottom of blue. And then as you travel up and taper to the, to the narrower part of the pleat, that blue is going to disappear. So you're going to have spikes of blue going up, which is going to be kind of distracting in the pleating elements across the back of the kilt. So typically, kilts that are pleated to the stripe are pleated to an individual stripe in a wider section that it's not distracting when you stack them all up. The only way that really works in that aspect is you'd have to have blue on the opposite side, which then changes the whole the changes the whole pattern because then that yeah. makes that blue not these little spikes it makes it a little wider and it makes it look like another stripe in there but again now we're back to yeah we're that's back designing to, you know, a whole new tartan that's yeah. not anderson yeah yeah so yeah we're back to the same point point spikes get it <laughs> i'm sorry i don't know where i found it <laughs> mr lucas next one all right next one up Oh, we have a gal asking, uh, when uh, a woman, her husband, is buying a kilt, uh, she's encouraging to, him to sit with his legs closed. <laughs> is manspreading worse when their husband's <laughs> buying a kilt and wearing it? And we're summarizing this with, how do you sit in a kilt politely? There's a reason why the camera angle cuts off at our knees. I'll start there. Um... Guys, guys are not used to wearing a, uh, to sitting with their knees together anatomically. I'm not going to get graphic. I promise. <laughs> anatomically, man spreading is a thing to a degree because it's, it's not comfortable for guys to sit with our knees together. So ultimately we sit as, 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 as compact as we can but it's not comfortable in the same way it is for a woman. Now, what I generally tell guys when they're sitting is when you go to sit, you back up to the chair, put your hand on the sporin, push the sporin down and sit down. So you're pushing the fabric between your legs as you are sitting. There are guys who don't follow that advice and will sit there with their, you know, their, their, I hope I'm not flashing the camera right now, <laughs> with their, their knees apart you're and good. the fabric taut across the front and, you know, kind of exposing themselves to the world. It, it takes getting used to. Guys aren't used to wearing skirts. We're not used to wearing things with, with, with no crotch sewn in and sitting down in public places and private wherever in a kilt. We're not used to it. So it takes a little bit of knowledge and, and practice to get used to, you know, sliding back into the chair putting your hand on the spore and pushing it down and maintaining a bit of modesty. I think we had a phrase a little while ago called sweep the pleats. Sweep the pleats. You have a problem with that? No, Rocky. No wrinkles. You know, just making sure everything's swept forward, too, as you're sitting down, so you're not bunching things up and you stand up and it's like an accordion in the back. Um... So yeah, it, it's 
a couple times with his do funny hanging out, you're, you're, he's gonna get told. At least you're gonna tell him about it. Yeah, please, just you know, <laughs> whack him on the back of the head. Make him make him understand that. Or just wear underwear. Yeah. Um, you want to make sure you're maintaining some modesty. You're not scaring the kids um, or grandma. <clears throat> you want to maintain some modesty while wearing a kilt. You just have to be cognizant of your surroundings, yeah. cognizant of how you're sitting, how you're carrying yourself, or what you're carrying and exposing. Um, so it just it takes a bit of practice. Point it out to them. It's because we are not used to, as guys, we are not used to wearing kilts we're not used to doing it a certain way it just takes a bit of practice once you have it down once you wear a kilt on a daily basis or a quasi-regular basis you'll figure it out it just takes a little bit of prodding to make sure that we're you know maintaining the modesty yeah and you said before i think you said before that sporn definitely helps helps with that yeah especially if you definitely if you're wearing a sporn not wearing a sporn then it's usually you know a push down on the front apron too just to kind of, you know, get that to settle. Settle in the groove. Um, we also have Andrew asking a uh, very similar question about getting into a vehicle. What did Andrew ask about getting into a vehicle, Matt? He said sitting in a chair is relatively straightforward. But what about getting into a vehicle? I'm so glad Andrew asked that question, Mac. Mm-hmm. How do you sit in a vehicle with the pleats without monkeying up the whole back of your kilt? Great question, Andrew. Thank you for asking. Um, here's a, a little trip or a little, t- uh, uh, trick tip, whatever, um, on how to get into a vehicle while maintaining your kilt pleats, get a bath towel, get a, a, a beach towel, whatever, and keep it in your car. If you're going to be wearing your kilt, when you get to your car, open the door, grab your bath towel, grab your beach towel, whatever, and wrap it around you while you're standing, sit down in the car and swing your feet into the car while holding the bath towel in front of you. When you're in the car, lay the bath towel off to the side, put on your seatbelt, good to go, travel to your destination. That will keep the pleats the same, tucked in, you know, conformed as they were while you were standing. You get to your destination, you get out of the car, your pleats will be fine, you leave the bath towel in the car. You go in, you go to the, the bar, the, the ball, whatever you're going to, you have a good time, you come back out, repeat the process, get in the car, you know, wrap it around you, get home, boom, done. It's a good way to maintain the look of your pleats, especially if you're traveling a distance. The, the enemy of the pleats, the wrinkle, the dastardly wrinkle. Bum, bum, bum. Dum, dum, dum. <laughs> we need dramatic music. <clears throat> the enemy of the pleats is the wrinkle. And the wrinkle occurs from heat and time and pressure. So if you're in the car for an hour and your body heat is heating up the pleats and they're they're fakakta laying underneath you, they're going to be wrinkled when you get to your destination. So the straighter you can keep the pleats or the less time that you're sitting on the pleats, the better they will end up. But if you have to travel to get to your destination, wear a... Bring a bath towel with you, wrap it around you. It'll keep the pleats nice and kind of straight as you're traveling. Yeah, I think it also depends on what your how your seat is, too. A lot of vehicles are, are more level or even kind of like a regular seat you sit in during the day. So you can kind of get away with the whole sweep the pleats and sitting up in there. Um, if it's more of a like a 
lower sink car. Or something, yeah. yeah, that you got to kind of get down into. Um, I think that's that's where more of that. <clears throat> I, I will say this as well. Leather versus cloth seats. Uh, Leather seats, you can pivot a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, cloth seats, it's going to grab the pleats and really royally wreck them. So the bath towel is absolutely a great idea for cloth seats. And be aware of your sporn chain. Your where your sporn buckles, uh, you can rip some seats up with that pretty yeah. quick. What was the car I had? My uh, my first Avalanche, my toy, uh, Chevy Avalanche. The uh, I used to wear my you know just jump in the truck with the sporn chain, and I wore a hole or you know scratched the heck out of the leather in the back of the seat from my sporn chain from wearing my kilt every single day. So I got in the habit. When I got in the truck, or before I got in the truck, of flipping the sporin chain over, so the little the little prong on the buckle faced the back of the kilt, and then get in the truck. When I get to the destination, flip the sporin chain back over so it wasn't wrecking the seats. And my employees, when we go to yep. <laughs> when we go to Kelt the Classic, I give the warning every time somebody gets in the truck. Everyone, please turn your sporin chains around. Flip your sporin chains. Don't wreck my friggin' seats. Yep, we got in the habit of it. It became it became routine. We're doing it, and I started doing it in my vehicle. Yep. And then uh, a couple of us then started getting sporn straps, and it was I felt that was easier because you could just slide the strap around, yeah. So the buckle sat over here more than it did in the back, and then you were good to go. My I actually wear a sporn strap myself. <clears throat> what what ends up happening is for the show, I actually spin the sporn strap around to the back. But every single day when I put my sporn on, I attach the strap right around here off to the side and I just leave it like that mm-hmm. for the majority of the day. It's a quick adjustment to get it on and it's a quick adjustment to get it off. I don't care how it looks. It looks fine. It's close enough. You know, if I want to be pictured or you know make it look super nice, I'll put it in the back, but I leave it off to the side. So that way when I get in my car or I'm doing something where it's going to scratch the back of the chair, it doesn't affect that leather or the material and grab and, and rip at the material so I just leave it off to the side. Mm-hmm. I think even your old uh, chair for your sewing machine had a had a line <laughs> in the back too. There, we actually have a chair in the office, the red chair downstairs, Lucas. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> this chair, it's a, a red cloth chair, and there is a there is a section <laughs> like three inches tall and about eight inches, ten inches wide. It's like ripped the hell <laughs> apart. It's just foam pouring out of the chair from my sporing chain, destroying this mm-hmm. chair. And at that point, I didn't really care. Uh, it's an old chair. But now my nice, fancy new chairs, <laughs> we don't do that. We nope. try to treat our furniture with respect. I took that chair into the into the shop and got a prompt, hey, here's your problem on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Hope that helps. Mm-hmm. What the hell were we talking about? Uh, getting in, in the cars? Vehicle. Yeah. And so, just sitting. So tips for getting in cars. Cheers. Mr. Lucas, next one. Alrighty, question... From Cynthia, and Cynthia is asking, how do you feel about a woman wearing an actual kilt? I assume she means a five-yard or an eight-yard kilt, as opposed to a pleated skirt. Women gonna do what <laughs> women gonna do. Um, <clears throat> traditionally speaking, a kilt is a man's garment. A pleated you know, skirt to the knee is a man's kilt. Women traditionally, again, finger quotes, um, wore below the knee or above the knee. Now, there are exceptions, obviously, for bagpipers and people like that. 
that being said, women's fashion is much more lenient than men's is. So if you want to wear a kilt to the knee, my 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 traditional eye would say that over time, as I, as I've developed my eye, it looks a little bit more masculine. So you could do it, but it looks a little bit more masculine. What I would suggest is you don't have to do a mini kilt, you know, like six, eight inches above the knee, you know, where it's a bit, a bit risque as you bend over to pick something up, but two inches, three inches above the knee tops, it would still look good or a little bit more matronly, you know, three, four inches below the knee is a, a nice, you know, librarian type look or ankle length is what's called a, uh, uh, not kilted skirt. Um, hostess skirt. Hostess skirt. Thank you. I was thinking Fiona skirt, but that's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, it's a more feminine look to it, whereas a to the to the knee look is much more masculine. Now, what about something more like the great kilt style, like a Arisade? That's a whole different question, Mac. How dare you, sir? <laughs> mix two questions. Well, we're when... talking about women's women's what kilts. Was Cynthia is that her name? Cynthia. Yes, it was. When Cynthia took the time, Mac, to ask us specifically about a man's kilt to the knee, and you're muddling up the whole thing. <laughs> How dare you, sir, Cynthia? I apologize. I do not know this man. Um, but since he asked, <laughs> what's your other question, Mac? Let's, let's lump them all together. <laughs> Sorry, Cynthia, you're no longer special. Mac's lumping it all in. Well, we were talking about women's kilts, and we went to mini's kilts, so... I, I figured the, uh, the great... You figured wrong, good sir. <laughs> the, the great kilt version uh, could, could be an option as well. Um, and it says, uh, can women wear a great kilt? Uh, that is, I am sure they're able to put it on properly, but what I'm asking, is it good form or proper for a woman to wear a great kilt? <clears throat> the reason I wanted to actually separate the questions, but now we're joining them, okay. um, was because... A, she's talking specifically about a a, a contemporary, you know, a, a tr contemporary kilt worn to the knee, men's tailored kilt versus a great kilt arisade, which is a non. It, it, there's no sewing involved. Mm. Um, for the the great kilt or arisade battle, um, a a great kilt is a man's garment worn to the knee, and arisade is a, a pleated length. They're both pleated lengths of cloth that you hand pleat, but an arisade is worn over another skirt, whereas a great kilt is just a length of cloth, and that's all you're wearing. That's okay. maybe a shirt. Um, so there's a it's it's wholly different in my mind from a tailored kilt or a tailored kilted skirt or a tailored mini kilt. Okay. They're both the arisade and the great kilt are both non-tailored, so therefore different. Um, traditionally, historically, not even traditionally, historically speaking, women would wear an arisade over top of a blouse and a, 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 a different skirt, whereas a man would wear a, a shirt and a great kilt. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah. Now, would, <clears throat> would you see, so you're saying that underskirt would be plain, uh, plain material. It wouldn't be the same, it wouldn't be like two tweeds or two two tartans it would be a plain skirt underneath with with this tartan wrapped around yes 
you're getting into history, which is more Eric's bag, <laughs> or not my bag. Um, but from I'm, I'm remembering from the uh, the Maclay prints, um, the like traditional paintings of you know clans. Um, there are women wearing at least one I can remember. Women wearing an arisade, and it's a a plain I think gray skirt and just like literally gathered cloth around the bottom half of her wearing a shirt and then the arisade kind of like drapes around it and over top of it. I'm thinking of uh, Jackie from the band Albanock mm -hmm. and the way she wears it is again a skirt and then she just kind of gathers the cloth around her in a similar style to a great kilt but in a unstructured more feminine look. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I remember when we were uh, getting cloth to to Albanock and and with their with their tartan and as people coming up to ask us how she pleats it and you're like I don't know ask her like <laughs> pretty much there's videos there's a site called YouTube <laughs> um, eventually we're gonna make a video on how to how to uh, drape an arisade and that kind of thing um, and Jackie shout out to Jackie from Albanock spectacular band mm -hmm. beautiful wonderful woman I love Jackie with all my heart she's a beautiful soul. Um, she pleats hers differently than the rest of the guys in the band because she's a woman, not a man. Um, but yeah, it's it's a different animal from a men's great kilt. Yep. Yeah, and and we're, I'm going back and now back to the, the first question. Um, and we have we had that you screwed up. I know. Uh, we had uh, we sorry, had, Cynthia, Cindy, Cynthia, whatever. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. We had you know, we had uh, Emily working and Morgan and, and Coraline. They all they all had different lengths. They all went different different routes with how they were wearing them. Um, one of the things that, that uh, Emily and Morgan really wanted was make sure they had some length in in their even though they got mini kilts in the aspect of the way it's made. Uh, they still wanted to go further to the yeah, knee. just above the knee or whatever. Yeah, yeah so it's it's. Your comfort, how comfort you are, You're and now Coraline's she wore much higher. She wore, yes, she wears a high waisted mini kilt, and then it goes, it's a little bit more flirtatious, but it's not obscene. Um, but it's much worn much higher on her waist than the other two. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's it's ultimately when it comes to women's fashion style, that kind of thing, it's very, very much personal preference. Yes. Whether it's an arisade or great kilt, whether it's a mini kilt, kilted skirt, or men's kilt. Um, it's very, very much personal preference is really what it boils down to. Cool. Mm -hmm. Mr. Mack, let's ask one question, not six, <laughs> and lump them all together. All right, so we have Jerry. He's asking, if you had to go inexpensive on a killed outfit, what is one part of the outfit you compromise on? Inexpensive on a kilt outfit, what do we compromise on? There's different ways to, to approach this one. If you have a limited budget, and I'll start with this. My, my normal, where I want to go immediately is the parts that are more expensive, spend the right amount of money on the more expensive parts that you don't want to replace or upgrade later. So if you're, you're a, you want to get Gordon Ancient, that's the tartan you want. It's only available in wool, so you're stuck with a five-yard wool kilt or an eight-yard wool kilt. 
get that. Spend your money on the kilt itself and invest there. Don't get a cheap kilt that you're going to replace later. Get the right kilt, the one that you actually want and you're going to appreciate. Where I would spend a little bit less money is on the belt or the buckle or the kilt pin or the or the sporin or the hose where it's something that you can replace later or something that's going to wear out like kilt hose or whatever. It's going to wear out sooner or you're going to be able to replace it at a cheaper price than the kilt itself. The kilt itself is going to be a lifetime garment, hopefully, unless you gain or lose weight um, or depending on how much you wear it. Um, so you don't want to replace a $320 garment, but a you can buy a $50 day sporin that's not quite right to start off with, but the $110 day sporin that you really, really love, that's going to be the one that you're going to save up for, and in six months, a year, that's what you're going to go after. Um, if I'm going to, if I'm looking at it from an aspect of omitting a part of the outfit to be able to you know, economize the outfit. The first thing I would probably, there's two parts. The first thing I would omit would be the skin do because it serves very, very minimal functional purpose. It's more of a, a look thing than a functionality thing. And chances are, if you are a knife guy and you really, really have to have a knife on you, you're going to have your own preferred knife, not a skin do, which is more decorative. Um, option B is this, the, uh, the kilt pin. I don't wear kilt pins all that often. Um, so that would be probably the first thing that I would omit from a full package or, or, uh, or the, the, the ghillie brogues where you can get away with something else versus the rest of the outfit that is kind of necessary. Mac, what yeah, do you think? I think it depends on the, what your the end result of what you're doing this for. If you're doing want to do it casual, if you're getting a, want to get a kilt outfit that's more of a casual outfit, I agree. The go with a a, a, a different sporn, you know, exclude the the kilt pin. Um, you know, you don't at that point you don't need a skin do. Um, the the buckle and and belt you can downgrade a little bit. It, but the kilt the the basic piece the kilt, you know, do it. If you're gonna do it, do it right the first time. Um, and that's, that's the core. That, yeah, that, that's that's the base of everything else. Um, and that's a lot of times. This is a similar question I get in the reenacting community, where they're debating on whether to get product from this company or this company. Well, this company may be. You know, cheaper, qual lower quality stuff, and this may be more top quality and museum grade stuff, which you want to get eventually. Why would you get this to start off with than to buy this? You're going to spend twice as much in the end to get the good thing. So just <clears throat> save get up the good thing. And get the good thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, put save the time and effort into it. It's even if you're doing it for a wedding and and you want to get you don't have enough for the jack and vest. You can always rent a jacket and a vest or just go the vest route because how much do you really wear the jacket once you're doing your thing? So it, there's some of those things you can you can exclude to help the process go along. You can always go back later and get some of that stuff. It's just what what is the event that you're going to that you need it to that you need that this stuff for? Yeah. <clears throat> and ultimately, think about the parts of the outfit that are the cheapest to replace. 
if you started off with a $100 kilt, which you didn't really like, and you eventually were going to get a $320 kilt, I'd rather see you start there and get a $320 kilt and have the right one to start with and save up a little bit longer potentially to get it than buy a $50 spore and, and upgrade to it's price wise. It makes sense to start there and not waste the hundred dollars versus buying a $50 spore and upgrading to a hundred dollar spore or buying a $30 buckle and upgrading to a $50 buckle. The $20 Delta is less than the $200 Delta on the kilt. So start with the parts that are cheaper to replace or the parts that you can actually move along with quicker and get, you know, and make do with quicker. All right, we're about five o'clock. We're going to take one more question before we sign off. Mr. Lucas. All right, bringing us back to where we started. Nicholas is asking us, what is the turnaround time for a casual kilt in the midst of a pandemic? Pandemic? There's one of those? Who knew? <laughs> um, <clears throat> right now, we are, we are very, very... We are weirdly operating as fast as we can, and nobody knows. Nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows how soon we're going to be up and running. Um, how soon the, the you know, businesses are going to be operating. Um, casual kilts, we have the fabric in stock. Those are easy. We can actually have it out in a couple weeks um, with a rush charge or eight to ten weeks with the normal turnaround time right now. Wool kilts, it's going to be eight weeks to 16 weeks. We have no idea because yeah. nobody knows when this is going to end. Um, we have a lot of stuff in stock ready to go right now ultimately it's all up in the air nobody knows what's going on and just like you we are all you know muddling through this whole thing together so we appreciate everyone's patience we appreciate everything that you guys are doing if there's one thing that is going to come out of this it is support your neighbors support the people that are helping us, the first responders, support small businesses. The economy coming out of this is either going to bounce back in a V-shape because everyone's waiting to get out of their house, or it's going to drag on and the whole thing is going to get screwed up. So from my personal plea to you, not about USA Kilts, about everything, is shop small. Yes. Shop and keep doing the things that you are doing. If you have been laid off, if you don't have a job, there's only a certain amount that you can do, and we get that, and there, it, we're not diminishing that at all. But if you still have a job, if you still have income, please keep moving forward, keep spending, keep the economy moving. Shop small businesses that need it. Small businesses are the backbone of this country. That is a phrase for a reason. We all need to keep moving forward. We all need to pull together. We all need to keep this whole thing going. And we will not let this defeat us, period. Whether it's a pandemic, whether it's the economy, we need to keep going. 
We need to keep some sense of normalcy. We need to have friends, neighbors, loved ones. We all have to come together. We have to keep going forward. So again, everyone out there, thank you for watching. Thank you for the first responders for what you are doing to keep this whole country afloat and to keep us all safe. Please, everybody, whether you buy it from us or somebody else, wear a face mask, contain everything. Let's do the social distancing thing. Let's get the hell through this and get back to normal. I don't want to be stranded away from my friends, away from my family, any more than any of you do. So let's all pull together, do what we got to do. With that being said, back to the harsh reality of social distancing and the horrible, horrible situation we all find ourselves in. But I hope this two hours meant something to you guys. I honestly feel much better just having a mental break yes. <laughs> and not worrying about, you know, where where we're going and what we're doing. But it all has to end, and unfortunately, reality sets back in. <laughs> I'm going to cry. <laughs> anyway, until next time, boys and girls. Slanchava. Thanks for joining us, guys. Our podcast theme song is Gold and Guns by the Kilmaine Saints. If you have a question for us, you can ask it during our YouTube live stream the first Friday of every month at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. If you want to get social with other kilt enthusiasts, go check out the Kilts and Culture group over on Facebook. You can also find USA Kilts on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or over at our website, usakilts.com. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, Slanjava.